Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Kate Nash, an attorney at Tuath Keeney in St. Louis, Missouri. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're excited to talk about crisis communications in U.S. higher education. Joining us on the program are Bill Feldman, Senior Counselor at Legend Labs, and Scott Cole, Shareholder and Higher Education Team Leader at Gray Robinson. Bill and Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Thanks Kate. Kate. Great to be here. As we think about crisis communications, are there unique features to higher education that institutions should consider as they strategize for communicating in a crisis? Bill, I'll direct that question to you first. Thanks, Kate. We like to say that institutions of higher education are target-rich environments for crises, and there are several particular reasons for that. One is the decentralized nature, especially of larger institutions with multiple schools, each of which has its own dean, often its own fundraising capabilities, multiple campuses and so forth. And then, of course, athletics is often out there by itself and highly visible to the public, including members of the public who have no other interest in the institution as an educational institution. You also have a large collection of 18 to 22-year-olds who are not always known for exercising the best judgment, together with a faculty that is, at least in part, tenured, even if tenure is declining, and have the freedom to say and do things that employees in ordinary corporations uh, might not. You have the shared governance model that's a tradition in higher education that makes it more difficult to impose kind of top-down discipline you might see in a corporation. And of course, at least in public institutions, you have the political complications that are associated with governors and boards of regents and so forth who are politically sensitive. Well, that's a lot of different issues. Uh, anything else, Scott, that you'd want to add to that list that Bill shared? Well, you know, universities have over the decades had a little bit of mission drift from their traditional role of teaching, research, and service. And we've seen, you know, a lot of universities see an expanded role of being educators and sometimes advocates on social issues. And that has caused some ripple among certain of the political folks especially on the right side of the, of the aisle. And it is starting to have an impact on universities and how they're being viewed, how they're being criticized and making it very difficult for universities to navigate in what is a relatively new focus on the institutions. You know, public universities have been the focus of free speech activities for a very long time. And over those that period of time, they have not always handle free speech issues uh, very well. I'm sure you all recall the era of the hate speech regulations, which were uniformly struck down by the courts, free speech zones, which didn't work out very well. Now, the big thing is that some universities are being accused of being biased against conservative speakers and allowing those speakers, the students on campus to shout down those speakers. And so, It's just drawn a lot of attention to universities, and it's making it more and more important that universities be in a better position to respond to the focus, especially in situations where you have a campus crisis. Those are really great points, and I think they really highlight the crisis communication in higher ed can be about issues that are like inward looking, you know, meaning communications that are needed to communicate about issues on campus, but they can also be outward looking, meaning institutions are commenting on larger societal issues, as you pointed out, Scott. 
So Scott, you just mentioned that as institutions are starting to reassess their role in society, how does that play out in a crisis communication? And what advice do you give to institutions considering whether to comment on issues happening outside of the institution? Like, for example, the Israeli-Gaza conflict. Well, and that's a, a great example of a particularly difficult situation and one where it feels a little like a no-win situation. You know, there's a couple paths to be taken with regard to those types of issues. One is to not say anything, but then there'll be those who criticize an institution for not taking a stand. Then there is to be out front on the issues, believing that institutions of higher education are well-versed and understand these issues because of the expertise they have on campus, and therefore they ought to be out front leading and speaking on these issues. But once they take a stand, then, of course, those opposed to that stand are going to be upset And that may include groups like donors, and that can have a big impact on the institution. So I think, you know, the first step in dealing with something like this, that particular issue, is to, one, not to deal with it for the first time when the issue arises, right, to be prepared. I know we'll talk about that a little later on, but being prepared and determining who you are as an institution and where do you want to be in terms of addressing these greater societal issues. What is the history of your institution? What is the culture, the philosophy? What is the expectation of your constituents, your students, your faculty, your donors? All of those things should be part of a thoughtful conversation in deciding how you want to deal with these these greater issues. Scott, those are really great points. Thank you for raising all of those. And I think that's a helpful framework for institutions to be thinking about. Bill, anything you want to add to that framework? Well, I think Scott makes a great point about mission creep in general and the need for universities to figure out when they're going to speak publicly on these issues. But I can tell you that even in instances where universities do try to work out some sort of policy on when they are going to speak publicly. Those policies often fall by the wayside under the weight of public or student pressure. I'll just very quickly give you an example. I won't name the school, but it was a very large public Midwestern university that got caught up in the abortion battle because it involved a health system that the university ran. And that's not uncommon, of course, for large universities to also be involved in healthcare. It also came to involve, in a very public way, a member of their faculty. And there was an intense debate on campus and off campus as to whether the university should speak out, whether how how robustly it should defend this particular faculty member. And although we worked with them to develop a policy that would help guide the university on when they would and would not speak out, it is extremely difficult when you are under tremendous pressure to say something. And I think we've seen that, as you said, Kate, especially in the Israel-Gaza matter, where universities seem to be under continuing pressure to take sides in ways that are very, very difficult to avoid. So, Bill, I'm just going to follow up on something you said there, which is you talked about helping this institution develop a policy. Do you recommend that institutions have a policy, but know that they may need to sort of override what that policy says in certain situations? Absolutely. You know, Scott said, you don't want to be thinking about this for the first time. And we will talk about it in a moment, the whole question of preparedness. There is no policy that is going to be so foolproof that in every situation, all you need to do is push a button and you've got the answer. And there will be circumstances that are, for whatever reason, such that the university feels the need to speak out. 
But if at the very least, some thought is given not only to what subjects we'll speak out about, but who will speak, who's authorized to speak on behalf of the university, who isn't? Should mid-level people like deans who may feel the need to speak out on behalf of their law school or their medical school have for themselves a, a set of rules and also an understanding that anything they say, even if they mean it only to be on behalf of their school, will be imputed to the broader university? All of those considerations are extremely helpful to think about and work through in advance, even if you cannot possibly foretell every conceivable issue that you might be called upon to opine about. Kate, if I could add to that, unlike the private sector where you have employees and you can sort of mandate downward what the policy is, what you'll do, universities have students. And even though even though they are not employees and the universities obviously can't exercise the same degree of control over students that they do employees, their views, their actions are often ascribed to the university. And yet we saw that at Harvard and I think Arizona, where the presidents have to affirmatively remind people that the students are not speaking for the university. And yet there can be serious consequences to the institution for things that students have said. And so that is an added uh, difficulty, an added wrinkle to doing all this, because your best planning cannot plan for what students may or may not say. Well, and that sounds like the kind of issue that might require response, as Bill has talked about, is if your step might be one of the groups, whereas your student population is speaking out on something that the institution that hadn't intended to make a statement may be compelled or forced to say something in response to what students are putting out there. Is that something that you've seen happen? Well, absolutely. A core part of the messaging that we've used for several of our higher ed clients has been to state what you might think would be a kind of obvious thing, but isn't to a great many people. And that is that particularly in the case of a public university, we are obliged to allow the students to say these things. But that does not mean that we endorse what they're saying. What is frustrating, I will say, is that Civics education in the United States being what it is, there is a distressingly large proportion of our population that seems either unable or unwilling to understand that distinction and to hold universities and even public schools responsible for the things that their students say. I do want to add one thing, and that is that unlike a more typical corporation, not only can't they control what the students say, they really can't control very much about what their faculty says, as long as it's said outside the classroom. We've seen instances, again, very recently in, in the fraud atmosphere of the Israel-Gaza issue, of faculty members participating in demonstrations and saying certain things that the university would probably prefer that they not say, and that their donors clearly would prefer that they not say. But they are you know, fully protected speech. Well, those are all great points. So let's talk a little bit about how an institution can prepare to communicate in a crisis. And if you all have any kind of specific tips that you would share about how you advise or help institutions know what to do when these situations come up. Bill, if you'd start us off. Sure. We do a lot of work with institutions in the area of crisis communications preparedness. And we're firm believers that it isn't helpful to put together some 100-page crisis plan that ends up sitting on a shelf and gathering dust. But we do work with institutions to put together what we call short playbooks 
that give them both subject matter preparedness and sort of process preparedness. And I'll, I'll, I'll be really brief in, in making that distinction. In subject matter preparedness, we try to look at the things that they are most likely to encounter and help prepare messaging and other substantive materials that would help deal with a crisis that arises in that area. Not, again, not uh, in the way that would enable them to just push a button, but that would get them, let's say, 70 or 80% of the way there. You might not be able to anticipate the specifics of the Israel-Gaza war, but you can certainly anticipate student demonstrations in a generic sense. So we help them develop generic messaging for a handful of the most likely things that they would be likely to face, and also inculcate the importance of message discipline and the idea of always thinking about what's the net impact of what you want these messages to produce. And I know, Kate, we've worked together on some of these issues, and net impact is something that you would think everybody would understand clearly, but it isn't. And it's remarkable how clarifying it is when you ask a group of people that simple question of what do you want people to take away from what it is that we're saying. And it, it, it's remarkably helpful in getting people to sort of focus on, on the objective. Process preparedness is making sure that you have rapid access to the things that you need, information about your institution, lists of people who need to be contacted, lists of media, and so forth. Again, it's not rocket science, but it's things that people often don't have gathered in one place until it's too late. And then real quick, the other things like making sure that the communications people have a seat at the table so that they're part of the decision making in a crisis and not just dealing at the end of the pipe when decisions have already been made without due regard for reputational considerations. Bringing in external people, if necessary, for their perspective and thinking about what the long term interests of the institution are, not getting too wrapped up in the heat of the moment. And I think that that's something, that's an area where lawyers and the communicators often clash because the lawyers are thinking about, well, anything you say is something I'm going to have to defend in a deposition in a year or two. And sometimes the communicators are so focused on an immediate response that there's a, a clash of interests there. And I think experienced lawyers and experienced communicators know how to work through that. And then the one final thing I would want to say is that the institution's values and overarching principles like transparency and the agility and being able to respond are critical. And, and my partner, Jeff Hunt, wrote a book called Brand Under Fire, and uh, he goes into much more detail about the importance of those things. So I know that was a lot, but well, thank you. That's really helpful. And I think um, interesting information. I'm actually want to ask Scott to follow up on a couple of specific things in addition to whatever um, insight Scott might have to offer. But Scott, as someone who led a general counsel's office for almost two decades prior to going to your current position at Gray Robinson, how did you address that issue that Bill brought up about there being potential differences between what legal might want and what communicators may want in terms of messaging? Yeah, well, there can be at times a healthy tension there, and that's okay. You know, I've always stressed the importance of relationships in just about everything. It's really important in terms of the team that will be dealing with a crisis. And so having developed a strong and trusting relationship between the legal office and the communications office long before you ever have a crisis is really important. And in both parties being willing to you know discuss the issues, you know, I see the legal issues as just one area of risk for the institution, not the 
risk for the institution. And sometimes the litigation considerations will take a backseat to other considerations, and that's okay. Sometimes the litigation threats are given too much weight, a lot of times because the people who aren't lawyers may give them more weight than they're due. So it's up to the general counsel to really put that risk into context and uh, think overall what's in the best interest of the institution. And let me just add on another thing on the preparation thing. I was always a big proponent of once you put your plan together, exercise it. So whether you call it a tabletop exercise or you do a run through, whatever, is actually going through the steps of getting everybody in a room and running through those scenarios inevitably forces you to think of things that you didn't think when you're putting together a written policy manual. So I think actually acting those things out can be very helpful as well. I couldn't agree more. We're big believers in simulations. Yeah, that's a great observation and a great thing for people to consider as they're trying to prepare for these situations. So, Scott, anything else you wanted to add that I, you know, you didn't have a chance to speak to on the issue of other ways to prepare? So you talked about tabletop exercises, the importance of relationships. It also sounds like just keeping open lines of communication is going to be something that you're going to find very valuable, because if you don't have that relationship to begin with, you're not going to get there unless you can communicate between departments. But are there any other insights, Scott, you wanted to share about preparedness from your seat as a former in-house counsel? It's important to get it down into details in terms of the communications. So, for example, you know certain calls need to be made to certain constituencies, but get to the detail of who will be making the calls to whom, who has the appropriate relationship with that particular constituency. You can't expect the president to make all the calls, although he may want to have the calls with the trustees, you know, it just depends. But if you're a state institution, there may be state level governance people and maybe legislative people, depending on the nature of the crisis. You have to decide if you're going to be internally communicating with the entire board or just through the board chair. Is the board comfortable with delegating that authority to the board chair? You know, at a state institution, you may have sunshine law issues that prohibit the board members from talking to each other during a crisis communication. So, you know, all of those things, the particulars of how you're going to immediately get out and start having those conversations should be thought through. That's really helpful. Yeah. Did you have something about Bill? Yeah, I want to say something about the Sunshine Laws. They are a real challenge in dealing effectively with crisis communications, especially when, as is now more often the case than not, you're dealing at some physical remove from other people. If you're not all sitting in the same room and you're communicating by emails and texts and all that stuff is usually reachable. It, state laws vary, as you know, and Florida, I know, is one of the most thorough of the, uh, <laughs> to put it politely, of those laws. But it is a real challenge. And I once made a mistake that I shouldn't have and found it on the front page of a newspaper. And it was good advice, but it shouldn't have been given in, in an email. It's It's a real challenge. Yeah, those are really, really um, important issues. And certainly that's an issue that's very specific to public institutions. But I guess you could say for private institutions, when there is the threat of litigation, there's always the chance that those types of communications will come out in litigation. And so something else you have to think about there. So, well, speaking of communications coming out that you may not want or communications coming out quickly, how do you all view the role of social media and its impact on crisis communications? And, you know, specifically, like, can, do you have any advice that you would give to institutions who are struggling to determine whether they need to respond to issues that they see on social media posts as opposed to that are coming through the news or some other venue? And I'll kick it to Scott first. 
Wow. No, you can't respond to everything on social media. It's just it would be an impossible task. But it is important to monitor social media so that you know what the trends are that are happening, what people, what uh, different groups are saying, especially those that may have influence with the institution. But, you know, social media has so impacted every aspect of, of communications and some in very positive ways and some in not so positive ways. It wouldn't be a surprise to say that many social media platforms favor timeliness over accuracy or thoughtfulness. And so you have to balance that desire to respond just as quickly as the post to making sure that you are accurate and thoughtful in your responses. And, and that's that can be difficult to do, you know, all the time. To the extent that you can get ahead, you know, of potentially negative stories and get the truthful, accurate, factual version out there first, that's a wonderful thing. It's a real challenge. But you still have to be in a position to respond quickly in some way, I think. And whether that's just acknowledging that there's an issue and being transparent about, you know, you recognize the issue, you're working on the issue, here's what we're doing, even if you don't have answers or all the facts, having some presence so that people don't make up words for you instead of having your own words out there, but also tempering that with, if you're not sure about the facts, don't get wrong facts out there because then you spend your time having to go back and clean up those facts. And if you ever are in litigation, that can be a real challenge having to undo what some of your folks have said in the past. Bill, anything you would add to that? I think we could easily devote an entire podcast and then some to this subject. I agree with everything that Scott said. You know, let me talk very, very briefly, if I can, about a couple of other aspects of it. One is just the way social media has compressed time. You no longer have the luxury of thinking about a 24-hour news cycle that was you know, traditionally divided up into certain chunks of morning papers and the evening news and so forth. It's now, as we called it, the half-second news cycle. Everything happens almost instantaneously, so much so to the extent that the idea to use the phrase that Scott used, of getting ahead of a story is is almost impossible. These things can literally circle the globe in a matter of seconds. We spend an extraordinary amount of time with clients just calibrating responses to social media. Should we be responding? How should we be responding? Where? And so forth. And in order to do that, you need both to have a very effective monitoring program. That's something that we encourage every institution to do. If you do not have a routine monitoring program, and if you're not taking that monitoring data and using it on a regular basis to make decisions about communications, then you're flying blind. But amid all of these hazards, and there are many more that we could talk about, there are also opportunities. There's an opportunity to communicate directly with constituencies that you previously did not have, and to do it in a very rapid and targeted way. And institutions that do that effectively derive some benefit from that. Yeah, that's really helpful. You know, as I'm listening to both of you talk, one of the things that keeps sort of striking me is this idea of there's just a lot of judgment required in these situations, that there is so much variability in the types of situations you may encounter and in the different constituents you, you may have is that you really need people with good judgment making hard decisions and executing on them. And then I also hear you all talking a lot about the importance of communication and, and having communications internally to figure out what the message is that needs to be shared externally. So that's something I'm going to certainly take away from this. Do you all have any other points that you want to share with the audience that we haven't touched on yet? 
Well, on this social media subject, I'd like to give you a really tell a really quick story, I think, that illustrates, Kate, the point that you just made. Uh, we had a situation where a extremely controversial injury took place in a college athletics game. And the matter became reported in the media and allegations were made about alleged encouragement of dirty play by the coach and the student athlete, a woman who was accused of sort of committing this foul that led to the injury was in the crosshairs of some of this social media activity. And every bone in the body of the people at the university and the girl's family quite naturally wanted to respond. Who wouldn't? And with limited exceptions, we were advising that they not do so in order to minimize the impact on this young woman. And sometimes if you're a communications advisor, saying just do nothing, just say nothing, is the hardest piece of advice to give. But as things turned out, we strongly believe that it it was the right advice. Social media encourages the hot take, the rapid response, you know, the fevered answer. And very, very often that is a temptation that needs to be resisted. And that's a great point. Scott, do you have anything else you want to add that we haven't already touched on? Well, you know, it's a very difficult to make the perfect decision in a crisis. And so you're going to make mistakes. And all you can do is the best you can. And you're not going to be able to please everybody. And so I think, you know, you you make the hard decisions and you do the best you can. And then you have to be willing just to ride it out. You know, if, if things change and you need to adjust your communication, sure. But, but sometimes you just have to ride it out and it, it will eventually go away. Do the best you can, but you know that that's all you can do. And so it, that's I think difficult sometimes for universities, maybe more than other entities, because universities are a place where people want to make everybody happy, and they want to have listen to everybody's concerns, and they want to fix everybody's concerns. And sometimes you just can't do it. And so creating that a culture where when it's necessary, you make a decision, you stand by it, it may be the best in the long run. I really appreciate that insight, Scott. And I'm thinking about a situation I'm dealing with right now where there is no way to make everyone happy and everyone's unhappy. And that's really hard for administrators at higher in higher ed because they're so used to trying to give everyone a space to be heard and to figure out a way to navigate through that. So I really appreciate the insights from both of you. So helpful. And I really appreciate all the seasoned advice that you've provided to listeners in this session. So thank you for the fascinating discussion and thank you for your time today. Thank you. It's been fun. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you would like to connect with Bill or Scott, please click on their bios in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. In addition, search the ELA website where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Kate Nash. Thanks so much for listening.